Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. On this show, we focus on military aviation, which usually means we're talking about service members in the military. Of course, we talk about a lot of civilians, especially when we talk about the space program. Many of them have a military background, too. But the idea of American civilians taking part in actual combat operations with authorization to attack the enemy, that's not something that comes up very much. Outside of, you know, letters of Mark in the 18th century or something like that, this idea isn't particularly common. And yet it very much did happen during World War II with the Civil Air Patrol, the official auxiliary of the United States Air Force. During the Second World War, the Civil Air Patrol actually used civilian-owned aircraft and volunteer pilots to engage German submarines called U-boats. So to delve into this today, we're joined by Dr. Frank A. Blazitz Jr., a curator of modern military history at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History and author of the new book, An Honorable Place in American Air Power, Civil Air Patrol, Coastal Patrol Operations, 1942-1943, new from Air University Press. Frank, thank you so much for being here. Mike, thank you for having me here. So let's dive right in here. What drew you to this topic and made you want to write a book about it in the first place? So I'm a native of Raleigh, North Carolina. One day in the early 90s, my father was reading the Coastland Times, which is a local paper on the Outer Banks, and it talked about a new exhibit at the Dare County Regional Airport in Manio, talking about the Civil Air Patrol, Coastal Patrol Base 16 that was there uh, from 42 into 43. And dad takes me there. And that's where I first became aware of the topic. Didn't think much of it, went in the U.S. Air Force, knew of CAP, again, didn't think much of it. But when I was in graduate school, doing my doctoral research about civil defense in North Carolina, so this would be 1950s into the early 70s, I was approached by a member of the Civil Air Patrol who said, do you ever come across any reference to CAP in your research? And as fate, dumb luck would happen, the next day I'm in the archives in North Carolina, look at the World War II era files. And I just come across a huge amount of records related to the state's civil air patrol operations in World War II. And I went, well, matter of fact, I have. And, you know, sent this guy an email saying, here's some of the stuff I found. And it was like, my God, you found the Holy Grail. Like, we didn't know any of this stuff. And I kind of got sucked in thereafter. I would find materials. I would share them with folks. And after a while, I said, well, I should just join this organization. It'd be a lot easier. I joined the Ohio wing of the Civil Air Patrol. And the rest is history, so to speak. I got kicked upstairs, if you will, in April 2013 to be the national historian for CAP. I was extensively involved in their Congressional Gold Medal effort. And then why did I write a book about all this? Well, I would be asked the same questions over and over and over and over again by members. Because, quite frankly, the history of the subject is extraordinarily limited, and it's mostly limited to accounts that were written during the war. Let's just say this is there's a war on, so we're going to put a very positive spin on things, including saying we sank U-boats. That's quite a claim by a bunch of these light aircraft flown by civilians. And I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole researching and digging, and, and it's research essentially trying to verify a statement. So Civil Air Patrol, I think it's very telling that it kind of traces its origin to December 8th, 1941, the day after the day that lives in infamy of Pearl Harbor. But obviously, an organization like this doesn't appear overnight. But also, I think maybe a lot of our listeners don't even understand what Civil Air Patrol is. So can you tell us a little bit about what this organization is and how it kind of came to be? Sure. So today, Civil Air Patrol is an auxiliary. I have to say and. Sometimes we say the. And disclaimer, I do say the in the book. But we are an auxiliary of the United States Air Force by act of Congress. And we are a 501c3 
nonprofit private corporation. We are a civilian organization. We are authorized to wear the United States Air Force uniform with distinctive insignia to separate us from active duty, active reserve guard and Air Force civilian. But we are doctrinally a component of what is known as the total force in the Air Force. Civil Air Patrol operates on a wing structure very similar to the Air Force. All of these wings are equipped with light single-engine aircraft. We are, I think, the largest purchaser of Cessna aircraft in the world. The bulk of what we have are Cessna 182 or 172 aircraft. The Air Force can authorize CAP to conduct search and rescue missions or other disaster relief missions. We also have now a gigantic fleet of small unmanned aerial systems. It's well over 100, uh, 1,500, I think, probably close to 2,000 at this point. We have at least three Medal of Honor recipients were former CAP members, in fact. So we're out there and we're active and we're serving American communities, uh, both on the ground and in the skies. So when it comes to, you know, the formation of the group in 1941, what's kind of the impetus for that? And, and what kind of missions are these crews going to be flying, you know, in the early days of World War II then? The CAP story really begins in 1936. A gentleman named Gil Rob Wilson. He is a Presbyterian minister, a World War One veteran from the Army Air Service. He was actually in the Lafayette Flying Corps. And he was also in the American Field Service as an ambulance driver in World War One. And in 1936, he takes a trip aboard the Hindenburg to Germany. And the Reich Ministry of Aviation kind of wines and dines him. And he is taken to some of, I think it's in Wannsee, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation there, but it's German Youth Gliding Competition, Fliegerkorps. So he witnesses this and he can clearly see the handwriting on the wall, right? They're preparing the next generation for the Luftwaffe and for war. And he says, hmm, we, we need to be prepared for these folks comes back to the United States and begins chewing over the idea of what can civilian aviators do for national defense purposes. And Wilson's ideas are not alone. He tries to get the Red Cross interested, and they're just not listening to him. So he stews over the idea. This is like 36 into 1940. In 1938 in Toledo, Ohio, Milton Knight, he is a sportsman, he's a yachtsman, he's an aviator. And he's saying, you know, we could take all these pilots, uh, civilian pilots, and give them the equivalent of military training so that they're a ready pool, a ready reserve group of aviators that if the flag goes up, they can go into service. So he will found and incorporate there in Toledo, Ohio in November 1938, something called the Civilian Air Reserve. And they have an Army Air Corps structure. They're wearing a type of uniform. They have a rank structure. So you can see this semi-militarization. They're all thinking that. And Wilson, to an extent, is thinking this. In September 1940, then, he was at Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, AOPA. They will come out with a program called the Air Guard. Similar, preparing male aviators for potential military service. They also have kind of a rank structure and uniforms to an extent. And at this point, the United Kingdom is going through the blitz, right? We, we've seen the effect of aviation and warfare since 39. Americans are beginning to get scared. And Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, himself an aviator from veteran of the First World War, he's an active mayor who's looking at President Roosevelt and he's hearing what's going on in England. And he says, look, I know what aviation can do. I was involved in the Italian front with bombing operations. I see what can happen here. And I'm mayor of you know, the city of America, New York City. He says, you know, Mr. President, what are you doing? Right? What about the risk of aviation? Well, by May of 41, President Roosevelt decides by executive order in May 2041 to establish the Office of Civilian Defense. And in a brilliant stroke, he says, congratulations, Mayor LaGuardia. You're the director of this. You were going to prepare the American people for potential enemy attack. But LaGuardia has contacts in civil aviation. He is a member of the National Aeronautics Association. He's connected with private aviation across the country. He knows Wilson. He knows Gilroy Wilson. And in June, he will be approached by Wilson, uh, by Guy Gannett, uh, Gannett Publishing, 
as well as Thomas Beck of the Crowell Publishing kind of enterprise, if you will. And they will basically, these three men will form a team to present LaGuardia ideas on how to use civilian aviation for defense purposes, national defense purposes. And they will present a plan to him that they refer to as the Civil Air Defense Services. And it's basically that. Can we, you know, we're going to mobilize America's private pilots, their aircraft, young people as well, make them air-minded. And so from out of all of this, by August of 41, there will be an informal board convened uh, by the Army Air Forces. And it's essentially to say, well, we have all these competing ideas. We got this Air Guard. We have the Civil Air Reserve, Civilian Air Reserve. We have the Civil Air Defense Services, which Wilson had launched at this point in New Jersey. And we have all these competing ideas and these people saying we should do something. Well, should we? Right? Is this viable? And the result is yes. They said we should do this. It can work. This would be a great idea. And that is really the point between mid-August and mid-September that LaGuardia will appoint Reed Landis, fighter ace from World War One. He's a vice president with American Airlines, extraordinarily capable individual with a military and a civil aviation background. Reed Landis will begin developing the plan for what will become the Civil Air Patrol. But he brings in Gilrod Wilson and says, hey, Gil, we could, we could use your talents. Wilson will take his plan for the Civil Air Defense Services that he had launched in New Jersey in the summer of 41. And that, together with what Landis is working on, that will really become the genesis of the Civil Air Patrol. Now, you mentioned, Mike, 8 December 41. And CAP, we like to say our birthday is 1 December when we're founded a week before Pearl Harbor. And it's in the book. There's a long footnote talking about the confusion about this, because there is a document. It is a letter on Office of the Defense letterhead signed with LaGuardia's full signature, where he basically says, you know, I hereby authorize the establishment of this group known as the Civil Air Patrol. And it's clearly dated 1 December 41. Now, in the process of researching this, I came across Office of Civilian Defense Administrative Order Number 9, dated 8 December 41. And the earliest news reports about the creation of this new group are 8 December, well, excuse me, I think 9 December, so in the morning papers the following day. And LaGuardia had announced on radio on the night of 8 December that this thing known as the Civil Air Patrol now exists. According to internal memo, a memo by Landis, what they did was they wrote a simplified establishment order to be printed in the informational booklet you know, for new mem prospective members to join CAP. Long story short, we're a paper organization <laughs> on 1 December. And on 8 December, we're still a paper organization. But Pearl Harbor caught us off guard. Everybody, including the Office of Civilian Defense. And it's on that day that LaGuardia essentially initials this form. Like, that's part of it. But you did ask about, well, what kind of missions are we doing? Well, as I said, we're a paper organization right after Pearl Harbor. Like so many elements of the defense establishment, as well as the country as a whole, we're all caught off guard. Some of the states do have an organized, uniformed civilian flying corps, if you will. And so they're going to fly blackout drills. Uh, they might like camouflage drills. They might fly over war industries just to ensure that essentially it's a type of combat air patrol minus the combat part. Uh, and they're just flying kind of recce and just making sure you know nothing's missed. Nothing is, a, is nothing foul as a foot. There's also training. So they're going to do formation flying. They might. They're not. This is key. CAP is not in the business of being flying instructors. And so any type of training operation you can think of using aircraft in conjunction with civilian defense. That's what we're doing in December and say January of 42. 
And again, these are all volunteers. No one's getting paid here. Yeah. So one of the things that was really interesting in the book that jumped out at me is this shift that happens during the war from, you know, the early missions of kind of flying these observation patrols. You know, you're doing spotting, trying to find the U-boats and then reporting them. And then eventually they start loading bombs on these Cessnas and they start actually doing some, you know, combat operations. So how does that shift take place from observation missions to actual combat with civilians? Well, we can we can thank Admiral Carl Donitz and the Kriegsmarines. So the decision is made in December after American entry in the war and German declaration of war against the United States on December 11th. We declare war in Germany if memory serves. At that point, they decided to send these five U-boats off the east coast of the United States to attack American shipping and allied shipping. It doesn't quite work out for that uh, for the United States because uh, we do find ourselves ill-equipped. We just don't have the patrol vessels. We don't have the patrol aircraft. Our people just don't have the training in anti-submarine warfare at this point. So these five U-boats give us a real licking beginning in January of 42. With the military shorthanded, it's actually American oil companies that are losing tankers, prize targets or oil tankers. These tankers are getting sunk that are owned by private oil companies. One in particular is Sun Oil Company. We know them today as Sunoco. And their president is a man named J. Howard Pugh. And he has a gentleman named William Mason. And Mason is the director of the refinery at Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania. And Mason is a CAP pilot. He's a member of CAP. He's an early pilot. And he says, well, you know, Mr. Pugh, we got these light planes. And you know, submarines are very vulnerable to air attack. They don't have the armor, right? They're not designed to withstand you know, repeated blows. If they see an aircraft, they got to dive, they got to escape the area, or they can get killed. Or if we can just scare them, right, they maybe will leave our tankers alone. I believe it's dated 4 February 42, where they pitched this idea to CAP's commander, Major General John F. Curry. Pew essentially says, we'll raise eight, I think it was like eight to ten thousand dollars to establish some kind of experimental patrol using these light aircraft to basically patrol off in the shipping lanes to you know, report on anything we see and essentially scare the U-boats away. The Army and the Navy are not really keen on having private companies with their own private air forces, if you will, flying operations out there. And as a result, they say, okay, okay, time out. So Curry will then pitch the idea to uh, the Army Air Forces and their commander. I think he's still Major General uh, Henry H. Hap Arnold. And Arnold, who was aware of the CAP concept from the summer of 41 and supported it, Arnold essentially and the, the Army eventually will agree and they say, okay, CAP, we'll give you 30 days to try out your idea. And CAP will discuss amongst the wing commanders. And essentially the question is, whose wing is strong enough to mount a concerted effort to get aircraft out over the sea lanes and maintain a continuous daytime patrol. And the two places that emerge are going to be Atlantic City, New Jersey, with the New Jersey wing, and at Rehoboth, Delaware, Rehoboth Beach, with the Delaware wing. And they're going to be respectfully known as the first task force at Atlantic City and the second task force at Rehoboth. And on March 5th, 1942, at Rehoboth, the first patrols will take off. Essentially, the Army looks at us and it's like, oh, geez, this is how bad it is returning to these guys to save us? Oh, we're doomed. But... Very quickly, the observation squadrons that are assigned, the Army observation squadrons that are kind of the referees to oversee them are going, these guys are good, right? They're reporting things, they're providing accurate information, they're conducting themselves in a professional manner, in a military-like manner. These are good. And to move the story along, the Army says, okay, we like this, we'll keep funding this. And then they'll open a base in April down in Florida. And it's a very important hunting ground with ships coming out of the Gulf and coming around Florida and up the East Coast. 
the Navy during all of this, uh, very early on, is going, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm not keen on this. And now Vice Admiral Adolphus Andrews, who's commander of the Eastern Sea Frontier, says, wait a minute. I don't have enough planes. I don't have enough ships. These guys can help me. They can help defend the sea frontiers, and they can be what he calls a scarecrow patrol, a deterrent, an aerial deterrent. We can get Mark I eyeballs out over the ocean. If the U-boats see them, we know their doctrine says dive. Andrews wants them. King is going, yeah, no. But the Army has already okayed them. The Army's already paying them, so the Navy doesn't even have to pay these guys, which is even better for them, right? So we're getting a free benefit. The Navy eventually will gain operational control over all of the CAP Coastal Patrol units. And as a result of this, we're building up the defenses, if you will. And, and so CAP is patrolling about zero to 15 miles offshore. You can send military aircraft even farther, as well as military uh, surface units can patrol up and down. So you have kind of a multi-layered approach to protect the sea lanes. But you asked about bombs. Well, you know, how do we go from just flying to getting bombs? Well, Coastal Patrol Base 3, the third task force, their unit history. What's amazing is that base begins in April, and they're flying missions in May, early May of 42, when there were three U-boats actively operating in the Florida Straits and taking ships in the Florida Straits quite effectively. And so you have this amazing document that you can line up that were details, missions, and you can then take those three U-boats and look at the war patrol diaries and show how, in several instances, literally a CAP plane would, would fly over a tanker, and when they landed, they learned the tanker had been torpedoed. And there's a particular incident, the incident that really is credited as the trigger for CAP being armed, is on dusk on May 6, 1942, when a patrol aircraft from the 3rd Task Force out of Melbourne, Florida, uh, they're actually on their way back to the base, concluding their patrol. The aircraft piloted by Marshal uh, Rinker, and he has Thomas Manning as his observer, and they report seeing a U-boat off Cape Canaveral, quote, in such shallow water that the U-boat rammed its prow into the mud bottom while attempting to escape. This air crew is, they're going to radio for help. Uh, they're basically going to request that Naval Air Station Dana River come out and attack this guy. And he's on the surface. He seems stuck. It's going to be an easy kill. But by the time the Navy aircraft arrives at the scene, the U-boat has, has managed to flee. The men will come back to the base, and it's essentially, we'll say, there were those dastardly Germans, and they could have sunk them, but we weren't armed. There was nothing we could do except sit there and watch. But this incident, word's going to get out. Pap Arnold is going to learn about the incident for that base three. It's Word is going to make it all the way up to his office to General George Marshall. And he'll mention receiving a report of a submarine, quote, in such shallow water that it required some 20 to 25 minutes to get clear. All this time, one of our small reconnaissance planes was yelling for help while it circled above. He's referring to the CAP aircraft in this incident, not an army, but, but he doesn't say that, but it's Civil Air Patrol. Now, First Air Force is going to say, look, our job's not to sink subs. That's the Navy's problem. But Arnold basically says shenanigans. He'll write George Marshall and he'll say that all Army Air Force units on anti-submarine activity should be placed under immediate control and authority of the commanding generals of the defense commands and to arm all small reconnaissance aircraft with 100-pound bombs. Although, curiously, in the telegram, he says no bomb sites will be used. So they're going to be a deterrent and we're going to give civilians high explosives and release authority, but no bomb sites. And there's no definitive start date. But the earliest I can tell is it's between, say, 19 to 21, 22 May of 42. CAP aircraft will, in some cases, be taken to adjacent uh, Army Air Force installations and bomb racks will be mounted on these civilian aircraft to carry 100-pound bombs. Uh, these are general-purpose demolition bombs. So it's unless you have the perfect, perfect, perfect hit, you are not going to destroy any submarine. 
if you have a chance to legitimately see one, drop it. But it adds to the deterrent value that if opportunity provides or permits, they can do something. And so it increases the deterrent value. One disclaimer on all of this, they do not allow the CAP civilians to physically arm the aircraft. So they actually do assign Army ordnance crews, enlisted crews, to every single CAP Coast Patrol base. And they're, they're the experts in physically handling, putting the ordnance on the aircraft, Army, and all CAP members are essentially allowed to do is remove the safing pins prior to takeoff and to reinsert them upon landing. And to hopefully, if they drop their bomb, it's a clean drop and not a hangout. And they did have some situations where one hook would disconnect, but not the other hook. And needless to say, flying with this live bomb dangling beneath a plane that's doped cloth skin with tubular, you know, steel frame, bit dicey. That's wild that they could drop bombs, but not load them. They could not load them, no, but they could drop them. So Another way that the CAP was very different from the Army Air Forces that they're working with was in the area of race and gender. And this really jumps out. You call attention to the fact that one of the squadrons, I believe it's the 111th from Chicago, was most likely the first uniformed operational flying unit in American history that was integrated both racially and along gender lines. But you also like really make it a point that the organization as a whole isn't necessarily as progressive as that makes it sound. So can you maybe elaborate on the role that race and gender are playing inside of CAP? Sure. One of the really bellwether people we like to highlight in the organization is Willa Beatrix Brown, aviatrix extraordinaire and American aviation pioneer. And she's married to a gentleman named Cornelius Coffey, a husband-wife couple. And Coffey will set up what's known as the Coffee School of Aeronautics in Little Harlem. It's an African-American-owned airport in Chicago. He will become a civilian pilot training program school. He and Brown had advocated for integrating the CPTP program unsuccessful. When what we know is the Tuskegee Airmen, when this program launches for the Army Air Forces, they're saying, you got to integrate it, they get shot down. But then Civil Air Patrol comes along. And Civil Air Patrol is not under the military. They're under the Office of Civilian Defense. And one of the leaders working alongside LaGuardia is First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who brings a lot of amazing progressivism to the Office of Civilian Defense. And that includes diversity. This organization will enlist women. You're also going to bring in African Americans. You'll have Asian Americans. You'll have uh, Latinos. You'll have Native Americans. But the segregated group she's looking at are African Americans. And so Brown and Coffee essentially will be able, when CAP launches in December 41, they will be able in the Illinois wing to say, we're going to found a squadron. We're going to have women in it. And CAP, because they have a policy, due to the Office of Civil Defense that said we will not discriminate on race, class, sex, or national origin. Because of this policy, they say, aha, we're finally going to show what is possible. And so in March of 42, they will create what's known as the 111 Flight Squadron at the Coffee School of Aeronautics. Uh, Coffee will command, Brown will be his adjutant, and they will also have white members of the aviation community there in Chicago who will join the squadron. And it makes headlines in the Chicago Defender, an African-American newspaper, with a headline that says, you know, CAP does the impossible. That's saying a lot right there. And there's photographs of the white leadership of CAP swearing in Coffee and Brown and these other members of the squadron. It's really incredible, a demonstration of what could be. But Civil Air Patrol National Headquarters is an all-white staff. And even though all these press stories get sent to the headquarters and then they kind of do a digest of them, this story is never covered. And quite frankly, no one ever looked in the African-American press and the historic black newspapers for stories about Civil Air Patrol. But this is CAP, this Coastal Patrol effort where the book focuses on very tiny. We don't have hard numbers because some people would serve for a month, others for years. But we're looking at maybe two to 3,000 
maybe 3,500. It's a very small group of people. Because of that, the 111 flight squadron, you can have this race and gender integrated unit in Chicago, but you're not going to see that on the coastal patrol bases because it's a much smaller pool of people. There's no African-American pilot or observer that I'm aware of that flew anti-submarine patrol for submarine patrol. There are African-American mechanics and maintenance personnel and, and support personnel for some of these bases. Women are going to be allowed to be support personnel and, and work in air, like basically airfield operations, if you will, uh, control tower, communications, stenographer, you know, office type work, but they're not going to be allowed to fly. So CAP is very frustrating because you have these incredible progressive actions and opportunities to bring women into the organization, to bring African-Americans in the organization, to, to integrate them on race and on gender, serving together, defending the nation, if you will. But yet, when the rubber meets the road, at the end of the day, no, that's not going to happen. It probably doesn't help that a lot of these bases are in southern states where Jim Crow laws are fully enforced. And the concept of having an African-American man next to a white woman in a base, even in uniform, even in wartime, is really anathema to a lot of people. And so it's this amazing story, but it's also a what if, what could have been. And the Air Force is very progressive. After President Truman orders the desegregation of the Air Forces, the Air Force is ready and they move quickly to desegregate faster probably than any other service. CAP's story is not quite the same. And the civilian nature of the organization tends to mirror the civilian politics of the location of the units where they're based. And so CAP's desegregation story and diversity story really mirrors out of the country. And it's not until the mid-1960s into the early 1970s that CAP truly desegregates and truly diversifies as a whole. There are absolutely pockets of diversity. The Illinois wing, the greatest legacy, I think, of the 111 Flight Squadron is that to this day, particularly in the Chicago squadrons, it's some, they're some of the most diverse in all of Civil Air Patrol. That's the legacy of Coffee and Brown. That shows what two individuals can accomplish. Imagine if we had had that possibility nationwide, what could have been. Well, the uh, integration story and the diversity story is certainly kind of an untold tale that I think a lot of readers will be surprised by. And, and maybe a lot of readers will be surprised by this book in its entirety, because I think the CAP is, as you mentioned, something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. So I appreciate the effort you've put into researching this book and making it available to us. And once again, for readers, the book is An Honorable Place in American Air Power, Civil Air Patrol, Coastal Patrol Operations, 1942-1943, from Air University Press. Frank, thanks so much for being here. And uh, where can we find more of your work online and uh, access the book? Oh, my goodness. Well, I can always be found on Twitter at Mill, M-I-L, Hist, H-I-S-T, Curator. You can also look me up if you just take my last name, put that into Google and put Smithsonian, and it'll bring up my Smithsonian website. And I list a lot of publications there. The good news about this book is this is absolutely free. If you Google the title, and we can probably put a link here in the podcast, uh, you can find this book uh, online as a free PDF, or if you would like a print copy of the book, uh, email Air University Press, one word, at symbol au.af.edu. Uh, provide them their, your mailing address and request book code B as in Bravo hyphen 168. And you can obtain a print copy of this book free of charge. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm at mwhankins.com. I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N. And all of us are online at balloons to drones.com. Our music is created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And feel free to submit an article to us for publication if you'd like. Go to balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you all next time.